on your mobile, on your wavelength, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, well, it's another fascinating morning, isn't it, in the dangerous world of international politics. Uh, I'll tell you what we're not going to do on this show. We're not going to go on and on and on about what Boris Johnson is guilty of. We're not going to go on and on and on about a 100-page document uh, that has been written with some glee and not a little bit of poison pen uh, by Harriet Harman and the brigade of anti-Boris haters uh, who think that he should be sent to the Tower and never seen ever again. Like Donald Trump. Trump, he should be consigned to the dustbin of history because look what he did. He went to a party, he had some cake, and then he resigned. But that's not good enough for us, is it? No. He must be punished. He must be sent away. Perhaps Elba would be a good place. Perhaps Devil's Island. Maybe put him on a long boat and a slow boat to China. Possibly. The point about all of this, surely, is that we are seeing the people who hate Boris Johnson speaking on other media. They won't be speaking to me. Uh, the likes of Chris Bryant from the Labour Party, uh, the likes of Dominic Grieve, the former Attorney General, who ended up leaving the Tory party because uh, he was such a Ramona that he couldn't stand it. He got kicked out. Uh, the likes, of course, of Bernard Jenkins, who hates Boris Johnson, always has. The likes of Harriet Harman, who's always hated Boris Johnson. You know, Boris Johnson may be many things. But he got Brexit done, even though some of you think he didn't get it done properly. At least he got it done partially, which nobody else had managed to do. Got it done a lot better than Theresa May got it done. She's still sticking the knife into him as well. You know, I'm not going to sit here and say that Boris Johnson uh, is the sainted man that some of his supporters say he is. But he's a bigger figure in politics than any of these pygmies who are having a go at him. And I know that many of you will agree with me on that. Yes, he made some mistakes. And yes, he's no longer Prime Minister. And yes, he may or may not make a comeback in politics. But the bottom line for me is that... He is being absolutely and utterly crucified uh, on the table and the altar of hypocrisy created by the very people who say that he's a bad man. Well, to be honest, Parliament has made a complete and utter fool of itself. The Parliamentary Standards and Privileges Committee uh, is a waste of our taxpayers' money, a waste of our time. The House of Lords, I think it's time we did away with all of it. The Honours List, forget about it. We've now got 29-year-olds going in as uh, members of the House of Lords because they happen to sit in the Prime Minister's office for a little while. It's a joke, isn't it? It's all a joke. We're all sick to death of the waste of money that is our political system. And I think it's time, ladies and gentlemen, uh, that we had a bit of a revolution. So let's have a bit of a revolution today. You know, this is not all about Boris Johnson. It's not all about Harry Harman. It's about the state of our democracy and why we seemingly can't get anything done. Is Rishi Sunak really the answer? Have you seen what he's done? What exactly has he done? Stop the boats, he said. There's been more people coming in the last two hours than there were in the whole of November. Practically. I know that's a slight exaggeration. We're going to talk about the migrant situation as well because there's been another tragedy uh, in the Mediterranean uh, near Greece. 79 migrants dead. This is exactly why we have to stop the boats coming. But the people who want them to continue to come, the people who continue to make money out of it, want you to think that we're doing the right thing by encouraging them to come on the boats. Well, we're not. And that's a mistake. Rod Little is here. Isabel Oakeshott is here. We've got a great show for you. Alex Salmon is going to join us as well. It's a fantastic day to be alive. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Let's get it on. Welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham. It is, I can't believe we've nearly reached the end of a yet another week, for heaven's sake. Quentin Letts 
uh, from The Times has tweeted this out today. Westminster's judgment on Boris Johnson runs to more than 100 pages. They really have all gone mad. I think they really have. I think they've been uh, investigating their own navels for such a long time. They think that people care about this. As you heard on Julie Hartley Brewer's show this morning, most people who are out there in the big wide world, outside of the Westminster bubble, do not give a stuff. They want to get back to a place where they can get things done, where they can afford to heat their homes in the winter and put the fan on in the summer, where they can afford to send their children uh, to school, where they can afford to feed their families and where they can afford basically to put any kind of petrol or diesel in their car without being forced to buy an electric one. Let's talk to Isabel Oakshaw, Talk TV's international editor. Isabel, very good morning to you. Good morning. Um, yep, I'm joining you for the revolution. I couldn't agree more with your summary there. I mean, I've been very critical over the last six months to a year of aspects of Boris Johnson's behaviour, but this report is just absolutely ridiculous. Mm. It, it looks vindictive uh, to remove his Commons pass. That's what they've suggested, this 90 days thing. I mean, I can only really think of a, a punishment like that for people who actually went to prison. I yeah. mean, during the Spencer scandal, there are a number of MPs who were uh, proven to have um, abused taxpayers' money to a criminal extent and were actually jailed for it. And I think those MPs probably lost their access to the Commons. Um, have they all gone completely bonkers over in Parliament? I mean, the the backstabbing and the um, vindictiveness and the and the extent to which Boris Johnson's old colleagues uh, are now hanging him out to dry this morning is unbelievably mm. ugly to behold. And at the same time, we've got yet more hundreds of migrants coming across the channel. We've got innocent, beautiful young students being randomly stabbed to death in Nottingham. We've got record high taxes. People's mortgages are about to go up. I mean, some people are finding their mortgages have literally doubled uh, in recent months if they're on interest only mortgages. The state of the country is absolutely dire. Um, so, Mike, I don't know when, when or where we can create the independent republic but I am in. Well, listen, I'm very pleased to have you uh, join as a member. You might even get a cabinet position if we have a former government. But the point is that people around the country are, as you say, sick to death of what's going on. They want the country fixed. They want the civil service to be doing the things. I mean, this morning we're hearing that they're, they're going to sort of criminalise more people for putting uh, food in the wrong bins. You know, they're going to start chasing you down the road if you do 22 miles an hour instead of 20. You know, the priorities, it seems to me, in this country are all completely wrong. And how about this from Tony, who says, in Liverpool. Boris was found guilty by the committee regarding several gatherings the police apparently cleared him of. How does that work? I mean, it just is a, is a complete nonsense. And why we're wasting any more time on this, I don't know. The man resigned. He is no longer prime minister. There is no point in expending more energy on whether he did or he didn't lie, whatever. I mean, I don't care anymore. I do care um, about the COVID inquiry yes. and we learn lessons from the pandemic so, so that never again um, should our country be put through what it was at the hands of this government. I do care um, that right from the outset, the COVID inquiry is blaming two things, Brexit and austerity, uh, as if a bigger state and yet more spending on public services would somehow have actually prevented the disaster of lockdown. Mm. It 
shouldn't have. No. So let's get to the nub of the things that are really bringing our country to its knees, which is not actually whether Boris Johnson did or didn't lie or treat the um, vainglorious members of the committee with contempt. Exactly. Frankly, I blame him sometimes for, you know, all the grandstanding of some of these individuals. Well, they'll never forgive him for not being like them. They'll never forgive people uh, outside of Parliament for voting for Brexit. You know, they are, uh, I mean, I don't like to see him using the same words as Donald Trump, calling them deranged, because it was only the other day that, Boris, that, that Donald Trump was calling the Miami prosecutor deranged. But the point is that, surely to heavens, they need to understand that the ordinary people of this country in the COVID inquiry want to see questions being asked about everything that's now happening, like the mental health of children, you know, like the collapse of the economy, like the problems of business that people haven't been able to uh, restart their businesses properly. What they don't want is, is some kind of, you know, Ramona-led inquiry, blaming Brexit, blaming austerity, blaming the evil Tories for everything that went wrong. I mean, it's completely ridiculous. You just can't substantiate an argument that the reason everything went wrong over the pandemic was because the Tory government reduced public spending yeah. because, you know, they cut, they attempted, frankly, not very successfully to reduce the bloated state, to cut the size of the civil service and to do a number of other things to reduce the national debt and the deficit. You can't argue that because they did that, uh, that's why so many people died during COVID. I mean, the reality is actually uh, there was record spending on the NHS. But then when push came to shove, we actually didn't really use much of the NHS uh, during COVID. You know, they requisitioned the private uh, healthcare sector. Lots of hospitals basically lay vacant. We built a whole load of hospitals mm. and Nightingales that they then didn't use. There was very high spending on infectious diseases resourcing in the run-up to the pandemic. So this is a nonsense. And why does it matter? Well, this inquiry cannot be politicised in this way from the outset. And these statements that were made by various council um, representing vested interests, I should say, for example, the Trade Unions Congress, uh, which is seen as a core participant in the inquiry, went unchallenged. Those were just statements that were read out. Mm. Um, I think that so much of what was asserted was just complete claptrap. Well, exactly right. And surely the point of the COVID inquiry, and I don't wish to be unkind to the bereaved families who have also been represented, but the point of the inquiry is to make sure that if there ever is another pandemic, surely to God, we must have certain red lines where we say, well, we did that last time, we're not doing it this time. But they don't seem set up to come up with that kind of conclusion. A lot of this, and I've said this before, appears to be about trying to make people feel better. Yeah. And whilst that is important, it's not the primary objective of a public inquiry. There's therapy sessions for that. Yeah. Uh, and I don't mean that in any heartless way. No, I of course actually, not. The, the video at the beginning of the, uh, the opening of the inquiry was very, very powerful. It was very moving. What you saw there was a number of people who lost relatives. Um, in particular, talking about the grotesque restrictions that there were around the normal rituals mm. of, of saying goodbye to a loved one. What I would like to see the inquiry focusing on is not whether those um, losses of normal behaviours around funerals and so on were necessary because of COVID, but whether they were a completely excessive response and a disproportionate response to the threat. Yes. Uh, so that, that doesn't ever happen again, because it's quite clear that those relatives 
um, are not just um, traumatized by the fact that their loved one died, but the manner in which they had to say or didn't get the chance to say goodbye to their loved ones. Yes, and I'll make a bet with you right now, Isabel, that the question that I would want to have asked, which is why were relatives not allowed to hold the hands of their uh, dying uh, elderly relatives? Why were they not allowed to do that? I bet that question doesn't get asked because nobody's got the answer for it. Because there is no answer. There can never be a justification for that. And I'll say it now, I would have broken any rule like that. Yeah, me too. You know, if I had an elderly relative in a care home who was being shut off from the world, supposedly for their own good, I would have climbed ladders and gone in the windows and done whatever it took because this was cruelty beyond imagination. Mm, It really was. Stay with us if you would as well. We've got a few other things we need to talk to you about as well. Thank you very much indeed for being here. Isabel Oakshaw, uh, Talk TV's international editor, with us this morning. Uh, We'll be taking your calls as well because we need to hear from all of you. 0344 499 1000. We're not going to continue the sort of witch hunt over Boris Johnson, not because he didn't do anything wrong, but just because... You don't want to hear it. This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here uh, on Talk TV. We're talking to Isabel Oakshot, Talk TV's international editor, and we're going to move on in a minute to Justin Welby. But I just wanted to say congratulations, Isabel, because I understand you've been, amongst all your other various hats, you've been treading the boards lately uh, of the West End uh, with a little show. Uh, A friend of mine went along to see it, said it was very good. Uh, You and Toby Young, tell us a bit about that. Well, thank, thank you for that. I mean, it's so not me. I am not a some kind of thesp that will go strutting around on a stage. Um, but what actually happened is that I had originally planned with Toby Young to do an event to talk about the lockdown files. Um, and our original venue got cold feet, um, essentially, because I think they received a few slightly menacing calls from... Uh, I was trying to cancel you, yeah. ...allies of Matt Hancock. Um, So our venue tried to cancel us and we weren't going to let that happen. And um, very kindly, the London Hippodrome, which is a fabulous uh, casino in the heart of London's West End, um, opened up their theatre to us. So I found myself on stage with Toby Young and most fun of all, two actors who played um, Boris and Matt Hancock recreating some of those (laughs) WhatsApp exchanges. And I think what probably took people by surprise It's just the sheer ridiculousness of some of the conversations Mm. that took place while such terribly serious things were happening to our country. You know, these politicians praising each other and saying how grateful the country and the nation would be for their services. I mean, some of it was just quite laughable. So I think um, the audience really enjoyed getting that insight into, frankly, the, the almost... Yeah, it sort of was. I mean, it is in some ways tragic, but also in some ways very comic. Some of the stuff that went on, and and we are, I think, where we are partially as a result of all of that. Because here we've got the main story, as you say, at the moment is is obviously occupying everybody's minds is what happened in Nottingham. But it's also there's a connection to the migrant problem, a connection to the illegal migrants still coming in small boats, despite what Rishi Sunak said the other day uh, that we're down twenty percent. Well, it's back up again. I think the number's twelve hundred or something in the last three or four days alone. Archbishop Welby still saying it's not uh, morally right to leave other countries to deal with the refugee crisis. He can't help putting his oar in. But the government seems powerless to stop all of this. I keep getting every single day I get new texts and, and tweets from people saying there's another hotel's been taken over. More people have been moved in. You know, there's no end to it. 
I would like Archbishop Welby to consider whether it is morally right to expose the people of this country to the national security risk that there very definitely is if we keep letting hundreds and thousands of people in about whom we know nothing. These are people who jettison their documents before they get here, so we can't tell where they're from. Mm. So maybe they're from Iraq, maybe they're from Afghanistan, maybe they're from Syria, maybe they're from uh, Albania. Who knows where they're from? That's the whole point. I've noticed lately uh, that the basic uh, thing to say is always that they're from Iraq, Mm. presumably because that's supposed to tug at our heartstrings. Uh, But there are far too many stories now of people who have come to this country, taking our generosity and our hospitality, and then gone on to commit atrocious crimes. In some cases, the authorities here knew that they had bad records before they were granted the right to remain here. I don't know about you, looking at those pictures this morning of those two students in Nottingham, and let's not forget also the caretaker who was murdered this week, because uh, he also uh, certainly uh, is another tragedy. Mm. Um, I just, I literally wanted to weep at the state of our country. All these things are connected. And you know, I, I don't have any faith that Sir Keir Starmer is somehow going to fix all of this uh, because he isn't tough on crime and he certainly isn't tough on the state of our borders, which he would continue, I fear, to open. Mm. Well, he's never made a statement about immigration at all. He's put out his five pledges for what he's going to do, but he has never at any point said what he would do about immigration. There's been a few mealy-mouthed uh, statements um, from West Streeting about how they'd set up you know, um, processing areas and processing offices in France. But, you know, that doesn't solve anything. They've got to stop, have they not, the ability for people to come to this country and suddenly be given the right to remain here. I mean, his number one pledge, and he could say it five times, is just that he should sort this problem out. I don't want to hear any more from Rishi Sunak saying he's resolving it. He's demonstrably not resolving it. I don't think anyone in this country has any confidence whatsoever in this Conservative government to sort out the situation with the migrant crossings, uh, but still less do they have any confidence in Sir Keir Starmer and his hashtag be kind crew. Um, so that leaves us with the question of what do we do about it? And I think so many millions of people in the country feel kind of a despair as to where to turn for who is going to actually pull us out of this awful situation. Mm. Because there is no end to it. There can be no end seen to it because, like I say, unless you actually stop the boats from coming, and we've seen another tragedy in the Mediterranean, um, you know, 79 people dead because a boat sinks outside uh, one of the Greek islands. You know, they're being encouraged to come here because they think that if they pay people, the traffickers who are extremely efficient at what they do, uh, they will eventually have a better life in another country which is not their own. And I don't blame them for coming. But well, I do well, blame the people who help it to happen. What we give them. That is actually what we give them. Mm. You know, they can't, if they can, it's a very logical decision on their part. They pay a few thousand pounds. They do actually get a new life in Britain. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying it's a pleasure to sit in a hotel for uh, two years uh, while, while the government considers your claim. Though I'm sure the devil makes work for idle hands and uh, not all of them are sitting doing nothing mm. for those two years. Um, But nonetheless, it's an entirely logical decision that whilst we have this ludicrous, it's not even a soft touch approach, it's a no touch approach, 
Of course, people are going to carry on coming. I mean, this isn't rocket science. It's not. And having the same problem, of course, in America. I don't know what your thoughts are on the whole Donald Trump Florida situation. But once again, we have um, a former president of the United States of America. Uh, we're being told he's never going to get out of this one, just like the last one he wasn't ever going to get out of. I mean, they seem to be having just as many problems as we have. Well, they do. And I was in Washington about 10 days ago. And what was quite disappointing, actually, was to pick up from so many different um, political insiders there, uh, the extent to which Ron DeSantis's star has fallen. Mm. Uh, Those on the right who were hoping um, that the, um, the Florida governor would be the answer um, if if Donald Trump sort of didn't actually uh, manage to overcome so many of these things that he is accused of, um, I think maybe heading for disappointment. I mean, there's still some time to go, but Ron DeSantis does not seem to enjoy the support um, of many Republicans actually now. You know, he's seen as very wooden, mm. uh, insufficiently charismatic, and crucially um, appears to have in some way alienated um, many uh, women on the right of politics in America. That pro-life stance of his, uh, just a little bit too strong on the anti-abortion mm argument for a lot of them. He is seen as a bit too right wing. Um, so I think American politics are looking, it's looking very, very interesting. Um, by no means is it certain um, that DeSantis is going to make it. No, indeed. I saw a, a figure the other day that said he was doing a bit better in Florida, but that's Florida, of course, and that's not uh, the whole of the country. Isabel, it's fascinating stuff. Thanks very much indeed. We'll talk to you again very soon. Isabel Oakshot there, Talk TV's international editor. Um, she's got Lots to say. We've got plenty of time to take your reaction and loads of you want to talk to us this morning as well. So please do keep those calls coming in. 0344 499 1000. Uh, we'll be talking to Peter Cardwell shortly. He'll bring us up to date uh, with the latest from Westminster. Uh, but as I said to you earlier, we're not going to spend the entire show talking about the litany uh, of uh, judgments that have been made against Boris Johnson. He's gone. He's not going to be an MP anymore. He's not the Prime Minister anymore. He's not the Foreign Secretary anymore. He's gone. And nobody could do nothing about it. This is Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. This is, of course, Talk TV, the place to be for the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We're talking this morning about a great many things. Uh, Mike, the taxpayer, says Tony in Barrow and Furness, is now paying for taxis to run migrants from migrant hotels in Barrow to other migrant hotels around the country on taxi migrant runs. My MP Simon Fell uh, joined Ramp and has received £9,360 from the pro-migrant group. Well, he may well have. I mean, the point is, is that, you know, we keep hearing reports from all over the country that more and more hotels are being commandeered despite the fact that Rishi Sunak said he wouldn't do it anymore, despite the fact that he said that he was going to start using more uh, former barracks and former, you know, uh, military prisons and possibly other uh, parts of the country where there were previously um, structures and buildings that could house thousands of people. But the fact is, even Suella Braverman has admitted that basically the backlog is so huge now that it's never going to be fixed. It just won't be. So there's the problem. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Uh, let's talk now, though, to Peter Cardwell, talk TV's, um, talk radio's political editor, I should say. Peter, welcome. Hi, Thank Mike. you very much indeed. You've been a busy man this morning, I know, looking at the 100-page uh, document, which is an awfully large document, isn't it, to, uh, to record all of these things that supposedly Boris has done. Tell us 
what he's supposed to have done. Well, really, it's about in terms of how much he has misled uh, Parliament. That's what the Privileges Committee say. They're saying in light of his contempt of Parliament, they say he misled the House of Commons. They say he misled the committee. They said he breached confidence. He said they impugned. Uh, they said he impugned the committee and thereby undermined the democracy process. This is about as damning as it gets, Mike. 90-day suspension. He's not their favourite man, is he? He's not. And uh, they suggested he sus be suspended for the House of Commons for 90 days. Mm. Now, as far as I can remember, the only longer suspension that I can remember was Keith Vaz, mm. uh, or Jim, the washing machine salesman, yes. as he called himself, who was... Um, uh, a, 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 a slightly to, more egregious breach, you might have said. Look, who amongst us can honestly say we haven't procured cocaine for rent boys at one stage in our career? Um, but, uh, <laughs> no, I certainly haven't. But uh, it, I mean, that was the longest one that I've yes. seen in terms of his, uh, in terms of a suspension from Parliament. But ninety days is huge, and also this. And it's interesting. The one I was going to ask you was because remember when when he appeared before the committee, and then there was a lot of speculation afterwards that, that it was all a bit sort of bad tempered, and probably what they wouldn't do was suspend him for long enough yes. to force a violation. Yes. So what? change between the, the day of his giving evidence to now. Well, what we haven't seen is the reaction in the report mm. and whether things change between the time that Boris Johnson, I'm sure it'll come out at some stage, but Boris Johnson was given the report on Friday. Mm. He then revealed some of it, or some of it got into the public domain by some mechanism anyway, right. and then he resigned right. and had a pretty damning statement as a result of that. They say, the Privileges Committee say that in itself is actually contempt of Parliament because right. you're not waiting for these things to come out right. when they're meant so to come out. So that's one of the, the contempts that they've that's of. one of them, yeah. Right. So in terms of the 90 days, I, whether that was after that, whether it was before that, Boris Johnson, of course, his lawyer put some more evidence to the committee on Monday night at mm. three minutes to midnight as well. Whether that aggravated things as well, we don't know. But certainly 90 days is huge. The threshold, of course, is this 10-day threshold that a few things happen. So if it had been, if he had still been an MP, of course, none of this kind of really matters because he isn't an MP anyway. But if it had been below 10 days, he'd just have been suspended, right. unpressed. And there would have been former, no by-election. Yeah, exactly. Right. Whereas after 10 days then you get into you can possibly have a recall petition which means that which would have been organised of yeah. course by Labour and the Lib Dems they would have 10% of the electorate in Boris Johnson's constituency Oxbridge and South Ryslip and North West London they would have then gone for a by-election mm. which given the polling at the moment he may well have lost I mean on the upside you can take advantage of the um, uh, opportunity to go on holiday to Mustique while uh, yes. affairs are a bit cheaper because school holidays haven't actually started yet although whether he would have paid for it himself of course well I mean I'd maybe he won't be able to do that anymore now that he's no longer an MP. But, you know, I mean, it does seem a bit over the top, doesn't it? I mean, uh, all of this, a and lot. lots of the people who, a lot. Uh, lot of the people who are, who are talking to us this morning saying, you know, nobody believes Boris Johnson is innocent of anything. Nobody thinks that he is, you know, the world's greatest politician or indeed the world's greatest prime minister. But this does, does smell, doesn't it, of looking at the people who are doing the rounds this morning, Dominic Grieve, Chris Bryant, and all the people who are talking about this and, and, and sort of sticking the knife into Boris Johnson. It does seem like a very vitriolic response to something um, which is relatively, you know, dealt with in a way. You know, it's sort of over and above what, what he's already been punished for. You know, he resigned as prime, he was kicked out as prime minister. He's now resigned as an MP, and yet this still continues to go on. And yeah. now they want to ban him from the parliamentary estate. Yeah, that's right. Not even giving him a, a parliamentary pass. He's not even coming for a cup of tea. Well, this isn't. Um, well, he could if he went through security, I suppose. But in terms of the. 
in terms of what he's actually being punished for, this is about misleading the House of Commons, and that's about as serious as you can get in terms of what a what a an MP. He denies it, of course. Of course he does, and people and he has an absolutely barnstorming response to this mm. over sixteen hundred words. Yeah. In terms of what he's saying, the committee it's it's a witch hunt, it's a kangaroo court, it's a, a, it's a conspiracy against him. That's certainly what he believes, and his statement is one of the longest and most vociferous statements I've ever read yeah. from a politician. So he is not accepting any of this right. and says that there'll be a you know, sort of line-by-line line rebuttal of this 30,000-word report. So right. this is going to go on. But the fact is, you know, the two questions I think you've got to ask are, one, was it proportionate? And two, does it actually matter? Because he's not an MP anymore. Right. It's what they would have done. I mean, this is kind of all I mean, this to me is like, if it would be, this would be a Senate hearing on an impeachment inquiry mm. into a sitting president. Mm. That's almost the, the, the seriousness with which they're treating it. Yeah. Whereas we're dealing with a man who's no longer the Prime Minister, yeah. not now even any longer an MP, um, and with no likelihood of becoming an MP anytime soon, and, and not really even a persona grata inside his own party. So it all seems a little bit... Yeah. Over the top. Their me. point, I suppose, would be: Look, this is what he did when he was prime minister. This was the leader of our country in the privileges committee view, misleading the House of Commons, which yes. is very, very serious. And certainly, uh, you know, it doesn't amount to a hell of beans. I'm not sure. Boris Johnson is always going to believe what he believes. The privileges committee mm. is always going to believe what it believes, and it's set it out in great detail in terms of why they believe that he lied and lied again. So, uh, you know, people will draw their own conclusions mm. from this. I'm not sure too many people's minds are actually going to be changed. No. By this report because I've come to the conclusions already. But also if I were to ask you where have you seen before any previous Prime Minister or M or any MP even being treated with this amount of kind of punishment mm. I don't think you could name one could you? I don't think I can but at the same time you can ask well has there been a Prime Minister who's done what Boris Johnson has done? Certainly Tony Blair uh, lied to Parliament no doubt about that. Uh, some people think he should be in uh, and the And he Hague did for something war far more serious because he took this country into war. Yeah, People absolutely. died yeah. I mean, you, people will say of course we hate Boris Johnson well people died in Covid. It's not quite the same thing as invading another country. I absolutely agree with that. You know. um, and it's I always yeah. find it rather ironic that Alistair Campbell is one of the chief critics of Boris Johnson, mm. given the fact that he, you know, as I've said before many times, has never seen a fact that he hasn't wanted to twist to his own uh, particular agenda. I, I think when Alistair Campbell's taking the moral high ground, you're in trouble. You really are, absolutely. What about the old uh, Bernard Jenkins scenario? Because yeah, a lot of people is... are interested in this one, because yes. it does appear, um, from what I can read and see, that Jenkins has been attending parties, has he? Well, it's interesting that this allegation, certainly from the Guido Fox, Fox website, now I've approached Bernard Jenkins about it. He hasn't got back to me. He hasn't right. uh, given me a statement. I've invited him to come on Talk TV whenever he wants to talk about it. But the allegation is that his wife, uh, Anne Jenkins, who's a baroness, Baroness mm. Anne Jenkins, had her 65th uh, birthday. This was during Tier 2 lockdown, December 2020. And the allegation is that Bernard Jenkins, who's a member of this committee, one of the people who's been very damning about Boris Johnson, that he attended this in breach of lockdown. Now, he so far doesn't appear to have denied that. He said he didn't, uh, didn't uh, attend any drinks parties during yeah. lockdown. But on the specific allegation, yeah. that hasn't been specifically denied so far that I've seen mm. anyway. So, you know, the, the point from Boris Johnson is he's saying, well, how can you be in judgment of me when you uh, allegedly broke mm. uh, these? Uh, Which is these, a fair question. It is a fair question. Um, Bernard Jenkins hasn't responded to that. I, I think he'll be hoping this story just goes away. Yes. Uh, it's not going to, though, is it? No, it's not. Because I mean, we're going to keep asking. Fact, despite the fact that, as well, that there are many things that people would rather the government was getting on with, that they would rather not see the Tory parties sort of taking lumps out of one mm. another, uh, that's, that seems entirely what they wish to do to each other. And I suppose nothing sums up the last days of Rome 
than this kind of behaviour. Well, I think you're right. I mean, if you look at the front pages of the paper today, of course, there are many things to do with the horrendous attack mm. in Nottingham yesterday. But tomorrow's front pages are probably all going to be about this Privileges Committee report and the fallout from that. Yet, if you look at the one paper today that has something that actually affects people, every single person in this country, on the front pages of the Financial Times, mm. talking about mortgage rates and the fact that they could go up to five, the interest rates in this country could go up to 5.75%. And mm. I think people dealing with the cost of living, dealing with paying their electricity, gas bill, food bills and all the rest mm. of it will sort of say, well, Boris Johnson, is this actually that relevant to my daily life? And I think that, I mean, it is in the sense that we want our leaders to tell us the truth and the allegation I'm is I'm not that sure that even that's true, actually, because, uh, you know, a, a, a spot check of some of the views that I'm getting here is people have got lost have lost so much faith mm. in politicians. They don't actually expect them to tell them the truth. They just assume that whatever they say, they say for the purposes of that day's news and that day's rolling events. And then yeah. tomorrow they'll say something completely different. I mean, look at Keir Starmer. He keeps saying he's going to do one thing. Next week, he's changed his mind, he's doing something else. Now, in normal worlds, that would be called a lie. But in politics, it's called um, a U-turn or a flip-flop flip or a well, change of mind. Did you know the Conservative Party are selling on their merchandise website uh, Keir Starmer flip-flops? I've seen that, For yeah. £16.99. Yeah, I think they're a bit them. of an overreach there. I think they should be giving them away. I mean, yes. well, who's going to pay 16 99 for a pair quid? of flip-flops? No, I'm not doing it. Quite expensive. I'll wait till the fire sale, I think. <laughs> uh, Peter, thank you very much indeed. Peter Cardwell there, Talk Radio's uh, political editor uh, with the latest news from Westminster, where they're fighting like rats in a sack believe it or not. Um, who's surprised by that? Because, great, pretty soon they'll all be uh, going on recess for the entire summer. And they won't be there for about three and a half months. So what are they going to do then? Unbelievable. This is Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelength, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. The most basic requirements of justice are impartiality, a presumption of innocence, equality before the law, fairness, dual jurisdiction and proportionality of penalties. The behaviour of the Privileges Committee has been disgraceful, uh, says G. Yeah, I think a lot of us would agree with that. You know, what on earth is going on? Why are they wasting so much time and so much parliamentary money on this ludicrous kind of crucifixion, if you like? I mean, is it Easter Friday, Good Friday or something? Uh, crucifixion of Boris Johnson. Sir Max says in 2080, they will dig up the corpse of Boris, parade him through London and flog his bones. Never ends. Bunch of vindictive people focusing on him instead of the country's needs. Yeah, what we need right now are some political leaders who will actually give us the strength to carry on because it ain't very easy out there for an awful lot of people. It's very hot. Uh, they can't afford to put their fans on because they can't afford the electricity. Uh, the only place to get in uh, any kind of cool air is in the car, but they can't afford to drive it anywhere uh, because it's too expensive and you have to pay a ULES charge every time you go anywhere. And it means that you have an absolute uh, paucity of money. You can't buy the food you want to buy. Uh, you can't have the luxuries that you used to be able to enjoy. Many people won't be able to go on holiday. I know these are not things that are necessarily essentials, but they are essentials in today's modern world because we're all very stressed out most of the time. Most people are working quite hard, particularly if they're in the public sector, perhaps uh, not in uh, some parts of the public sector. But in the end, you know, we are living through what is a very, very weird period of time. And our political leaders are spending their entire time navel-gazing, staring off each other, trying to get each other sort of, you know, politically assassinated so that they no longer uh, can ever work again. It's happening in America. It's happening here. Um, it's happening up in Scotland. I mean, it's all over the place. Let's talk to a man who knows a thing or two about all of that. Alex Salmond, former First Minister of Scotland and leader of the Alipa Party. I think I've said that right. Very good morning to you, Alex. Good morning, Mike. I, I don't want to interrupt your grumpy, middle-aged man rant. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is, when I, when I listen to you, Mike, I find myself agreeing 
Well, that's the trouble, you see. I mean, as much as people go, Mike Graham, you know, what's wrong with him? Why is he always complaining? The trouble is, I'm a very positive individual, but there's a lot to complain about. And I'm sorry to, to have to point these things out to people, but I'm afraid, you know, and this is no defence of Boris Johnson, by the way, but what it is is a defence of the public. What we don't want to see is a rather unseemly kind of revenge fest going on. And you've been a victim of that in the past. You know, it's not what the public want. They don't care about Boris Johnson anymore. He's not prime minister. He's not an MP. Just leave him alone and get on with the business of fixing the country. Well, the, the, I mean, the couple of things about Boris, I mean, uh, only Boris could get a 90-day suspension. I mean, not content with a, a, a normal suspension right. of five days or even 30 days. He's going to go down in history as the, the longest suspension in history. Yeah. No half measures with Boris. I, I tend to think, well, two things I'd say. One, I always regard the electorate as preeminent. Uh, I'm not saying there shouldn't be parliamentary penalties, but I, I, I've always been deeply suspicious of this recall procedure, incidentally. Yeah. There's been a recall procedure throughout history. It's called an election. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, everybody has to face an election. I, mean, I don't mind that there's a, you know, a long-standing provision. If you get jailed for a year, uh, then you get disqualified automatically. Fair enough, because you couldn't represent your, your constituents behind bars. Right. But uh, the rest of it... Although you know, apparently you can in America, which is quite an interesting uh, thing, but we'll come back to that. But talk, talk, I mean, I think I'm right in saying Scottish politics, Tommy Sheridan, uh, the anti-poll tax campaigner, gloriously uh, fought a council election from uh, from Barlini Prison. Yes. Uh, Tommy Sheridan, famously, of course, former Talk 107 presenter and uh, columnist at the Daily Mirror in Scotland, which I hired him for both. <laughs> That's right. Well, they, so, they, so it just shows you what can be done. But the other thing, and this, this is a point, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't defend Boris Johnson either uh, because, you know, I, I think he was caught dissembling in front of the in front of the committee. Mm. Uh, and there's nothing like, you know, parliamentarians uh, on their haunches de defending their honour. No. You know, in, in high dudgeon. In high dudgeon. Well, that bit about, you know, uh, trying to undermine and intimidate the committee, that's classic, absolute classic. Mm. The one thing I would say, uh, you mentioned Tony Blair, right? I tried over a prolonged period of time to have uh, Tony Blair impeached yes. uh, for uh, misleading Parliament about the reasons for the war in Iraq. Yeah, uh, and you know, I'm not saying uh, you know, but obviously nobody's going to defend parties in Downing Street or Checkers or whatever. Nobody should defend misleading Parliament about them. Nobody should defend assembling in front of a parliamentary committee. But you know, some things uh, in life and politics. Uh, are even more important than that. The life and death and hundreds of thousands dead in Iraq mm. struck me as rather more important than that. Right. So I'm not all certain how uh, you know House of Commons, which albeit narrowly, incidentally, because I think I lost one motion by just about 27 votes. Yes, but Commons, which can uh, effectively not exonerate but not punish a prime minister for misleading a country into an illegal right. war, and of course they get high horse about other things, right. and that is very very. Interesting, surprising, and perhaps people should get things into context. Uh, into perspective as well, because the defenders of this action in Parliament say, oh, well, your thing is, though, that we must make sure that the Prime Ministers don't lie to us and don't forget we're all still reaping, um, you know, the whirlwind of what he did and what he caused and all of the problems with COVID and all the rest of it. Well, what about what Tony Blair did? Because invading Iraq wasn't just about invading Iraq. That has caused massive global problems now. He basically set the Middle East on fire, uh, created the possibility for ISIS to exist, and as to be to be honest, should be held responsible now for the migrant crisis sweeping across Western Europe. Well, I mean, I I, I think that uh, wrong though 
parties in Downing Street and ignoring your own regulations on COVID are, uh, I think it's put into context between a, an illegal war which engulfed the planet and 20 years later we're still living with the, the consequences of it. Yeah, exactly right. Um, let's go to Scotland for a moment because uh, amazing events at last Sunday, uh, I must say, um, I was expecting Nicola Sturgeon to be arrested sort of sooner than she was, but she was finally arrested on Sunday, uh, taken into a police custody and questioned for about seven to eight hours. And yet um, people have been saying, well, if Nicola Sturgeon was still the first minister of the SNP, she would have probably suspended herself. But yet uh, Hamza Yusuf has not suspended her. Well, of course, that, that is true. Uh, uh, and Hamza Yusuf's problem with this, uh, in my estimation, it's not so much that his stand on the presumption of innocence. I think that's a perfectly honourable stand. Indeed, that's what I practised in 20 years as a uh, as SNP leader. Yeah. I, I presume people to be innocent until until otherwise established. Uh, the difficulty is, of course, uh, that's not what Nicola Sturgeon practised. Right. I mean, she was sweeping people out the party at the drop of a hat. And, of course, a number of these people who were treated in that way, people like Michelle Thompson, the MSP for Falkirk, are quite rightly and quite legitimately saying, you know, why did I get my parliamentary career at Westminster ruined uh, when I wasn't even under investigation, yes. never mind interviewed as a suspect? And why is Nicola Sturgeon being treated differently? Now, I don't so much blame Hamza Yusuf for this, because I actually think if he applies the stance he's taken consistently without fear or favour, whether people are opponents or supporters of him, uh, then that's perfectly fair. The difficulty is... He's still uh, haunted by the fact that his predecessor acted ex very differently uh, and quite unjustly to a, a range of people. So that's his difficulty. Now, in my view, the, the way that he has to move is on policy matters initially and then on strategy towards independence. He has to put clear tartan water between his new administration and what has gone before. Mm. And he should start by, by sweeping away many of the policy initiatives which are causing such angst in Scottish society, like you know, the, the bottle scheme, self-identification, closing off fishing areas, uh, and you know, abolishing jury trials in some cases. <laughs> Another, you know, these, these, uh, these policies are either mad or bad. Right. And isn't there, a, isn't there a new one now that they're, they're, they're cooking up where families might be handed a fine or even a criminal record for using the wrong bin? Well, I, I saw that one, Mike. Uh, mind you, I, I saw it in the Daily Mail. Uh, and if, if you'll forgive me, when I see something in the Daily Mail, uh, and I like I to see, see that's, that's operating. That's a, a very, like that's a very dangerous dangerous precedent to set that, Alex. You know very well the no, Daily no, Mail. No, no, it's not. I mean, look, Mike, come on. Like, the Daily Mail is not like the Daily Mirror when you used to edit it with such a... Uh, well, it could be in Scotland. I, I believed every word that was printed <laughs> in the Daily Mirror. Now, <clears throat> I think there's a germ of truth in this. I mean, it would be ridiculous, of course, uh, if you started thinking the most important thing to do was to find people who actually put the rubbish in bins, even if they put them in the wrong bin. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you should really start by finding people who don't bother putting them in any bin. Well, there is that. But this has happened in some councils in, in England. So, I mean, it's not un unheard of. It's meant to be part of the circular economy bill. Which sounds, yeah, a little, which sounds a little bit like a circular firing squad. What is well, that I'm all, I'm all suspicious when I hear there's a minister for the circular economy. Yes. My alarm bells start to ring. I mean, there's a, a guy who, who apparently is in charge of Circularity Scotland and gets paid £300,000 <laughs> for being in charge of Circularity Scotland. And then when the deposit return scheme was binned, 
the, the thing he was getting paid £300,000 to be in charge of. Mm. They came out of a statement saying, you know, the, the scheme is not dead. Yes. You know, it's only resting, like yes. Monty Python's parrot. And I was thinking to myself, why on earth, if you're being paid £300,000 to run Circularity Scotland, should you not accept that the scheme which you're being proposed to run has been bidden? No. It may be something to do with the fact you're being paid £300,000 to run it. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? I mean, it is getting more and more like a Monty Python movie, actually, in the whole business of govern, government and governance up in Scotland. Have a look at this video that was sent to me um, about Jackson Carlaw, uh, former Tory leader, MSP now, uh, of course, for Eastwood. Uh, have a look at this. Petitioners. The Scottish Government has stated that a camper van and motorhome working group was set up and has explored the unique challenges created by motorhome and camper van users in Scotland, with facilities being part of its consideration. I mean, once they start laughing at you, it's all over, isn't it? Well, I mean, and, uh, what makes it even more delicious is that Jackson Carlow is a second-hand car salesman <laughs> by, by profession, so he knows a bit of too. Uh, about the value of second-hand cars and, indeed, motorhomes. Yes. And, I mean, obviously, the investigation is ongoing, so you won't be able to answer this question, but does anybody really know where the motorhome is? Well, oh, yeah, no, the, the, the motorhome's whereabouts are, are well-known in public knowledge. The motorhome is behind bars uh, in a police compound in Glasgow. Ah, OK. Jolly good. Will it be paying a ULES charge for being there? That, that I don't know, <laughs> but what I do know is I suspect that the police obviously know everything about the motorhome, and... You're quite right, Mike. I mean, I'm interested in people on this matter, which is a very serious uh, you know, financial matter and a very serious investigation. Mm. Everybody sort of says, well, of course, we can't speak about this investigation because it's a live police investigation. And then they go on to proceed to speak about it. So <clears throat> I'm the exception. I, I'm the person who says I'm not going to speak about the live police investigation. And then I don't speak about it. Yes, well, that is unusual. But it is a very unusual thing now for the police to allow anybody to speak about anything. It seems to be the way of things that they go, oh, no, we can't talk about that uh, because we're still investigating it, which to me is not democratic at all. But finally, before we let you go, let's ask you about the um, uh, the entire dynamic, as you put it, uh, of the election and how it's going to change. You've been talking um, about how um, we shouldn't be saying how many seats will be lost to Labour, but how many seats of the 10 remaining unionist seats will be lost to the Scotland United Coalition. Right, well, what I'm arguing, Mike, is this, that we're in a situation where the SNP supporters fall in 10%, uh, and, you know, that's actually quite resilient given what's been going on. Yeah. The independent support in the last two opinion polls is still above 50%. Uh, if you actually want to progress towards independence, then, then the way forward is to fight the next election, next year, the general election, on independence, mm. not on party politics, because the party politics of the SNP are... Well, under a cloud, let's yeah. say that. Whereas independence still has strong, resilient support. Mm. So my idea, Alipa's idea, is one Alipa ca one candidate for all the independence parties, SNP, Scotland United for Independence, Alipa, Scotland United for Independence, Green Party, Scotland United for Independence, maybe some one or two colourful independents like yourself, but people who believe in independence uh, on that ticket as well. And that way you maximise the vote behind the 50% or so people who believe in independence, you downplay the party politics. If we went ahead and did that, then instead of speculating about 20 seats Labour is going to win from the SNP, the whole context of politics would change and it would be the number of seats the, SF, the, the Scotland United for Independence coalition could win from the Unionist parties. Right. Now, as I've said earlier, Hamza Yusuf, in my opinion, should sweep away 
much of the policy program he's inherited and then go on with a job running housing, transport, health and education in the Scottish Parliament. But the political tactics and strategy for the next election should be on a Scotland united for independence. Right. Interesting times. Uh, Alex, good to see you. We'll see you next week. Uh, Alex Salmon, former First Minister of Scotland and leader of the Alapa Party, talking there about the next general election because it will be a fascinating one. Lots of people tell me that the Labour Party are eschewing. Uh, lots of people also tell me that they're not. And I think you know what happens when there's a split in the vote. It could go either way. Uh, in Scotland, Labour Party could lose a bunch of seats, um, more than the SNP. It's very possible that the Tories could lose more seats in Scotland. It's also possible that the independence movement gets more seats and Labour don't make any gains at all. Also possible that if Rishi Sunak sorts out a few things in uh, Britain, that he could still win. And that, for me, is the bottom line. We'll bring you to Dean Dorries' tweet soon. This is Talk TV. Coming up, we're going to be talking uh, to former Surrey Police and Crime Commissioner Kevin Hurley. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, we've got the Nadine Dorries tweet now. She has said this about the uh, report that's come out this morning. Uh, this report has overreached and revealed its true predetermined intentions. It's quite bizarre. Harman declared her position before it began. Jenkins, the most senior MP on the committee, attended an actual party. Any Conservative MP who would vote for this report is fundamentally not a Conservative and will be held to account by members and the public. Deselections may follow. It's serious. MPs will now have to show this committee what real justice looks like and how it's done. Nadine, of course, um, will have her show back here on Friday night uh, on Talk TV. She's already saying that she hasn't agreed yet uh, to resign as an MP, uh, given what has happened since she spoke to me last Friday morning uh, when she said she did not want to cause a by-election uh, and events rather took hold of it after that and the belief was that she was going to resign. So still an open uh, case that we're not absolutely sure what's going to happen. But we'll find out from Nadine uh, as soon as we can, of course. Right now, though, let's talk to Kevin Hurley. We've still got some horrific um, stories stories to tell and stories to hear about uh, on the Nottingham attack, which happened, of course, earlier this week. The front pages uh, of the uh, newspapers this morning are all full of pictures of the families um, of, the, of the three victims who were killed, uh, knifed to death uh, by uh, an assailant who's now in custody, uh, being held under suspicion of murder. Um, let's talk to Kevin Hurley, former Surrey Police and Crime Commissioner. Kevin, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Um, the story doesn't get any easier to read, I'm afraid, does it? I mean, it was awful seeing the parents of, of the two young students in particular yesterday just ruined by grief, just incapable of really understanding what's happened. And your heart just went out to them, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I've learned as a career detective for more than 30-odd years is that sudden deaths in families, particularly of children, because, of course, these are the mm. children of the families on there, um, and of course, one of them was a granddad. They are always very difficult for a family to come to terms with, whether mm. it's a road accident, a murder, or a suicide. It's, it really creates a whole train, train, a chain of trauma for everyone surrounding that. And it's a very difficult thing to deal with. Of course, for the police, I won't say it's part of life, but it is one of the things you end up getting used to dealing with. And sometimes you adopt these kind of elements of black humour which you try and keep to yourself just so you can actually manage what you what's in front of you which mm. is horrific trauma absolutely the police now uh, you know they're trying to put a case together on what's clearly the obvious suspect to make sure 
essentially he will be convicted of murder. And in my summation, my guess is he will not be able to plead a defence of manslaughter through diminished responsibility as a way out of getting what is likely to be uh, a, a life imprisonment sentence with a minimum recommendation of anything because of the numbers of a mandatory life sentence to perhaps 30, 35 years minimum recommendation. So for this guy and his defence team, they've got a lot to play with in terms of whatever sentence he gets, whether it's a life, whether it's a hospital order, mm. which of course would leave him an option one day, having gone through perhaps Broadmoor and then National Health Service secure units to actually come back out in the community on the basis that he was suffering from diminished responsibility. Um, so the police will be working very hard on behalf of the families and all of us to make sure all the evidence is presented to the court so that the judge and jury can form the correct decision on the evidence presented before them. Sure. I said before when I was on here with you, Mike, as well, this raises another issue of just how vulnerable we, the public, are to the marauding attacker, whether they're mentally ill or they're driven by some extremist uh, religious doctrine or belief to go out and slaughter members of public, mm. whether with vehicles or knives, as we've seen so many times up and down the country. How fit, really, for purpose are the individual patrol officers to protect us? Mm. Well, and the answer to that question, as I said before, is not very, because our police, because they do not carry sidearms, they cannot take decisive action when someone is running amok in our shopping centre or crashing into people um, on their high streets. I gave the example mm. before of the Nice lorry driver, uh, the madman, is apparently Islamist fanatic, who drove into a load of firework uh, party watchers and killed 86 of them a couple of years ago in Nice. Yes, I remember that. He was stopped. Yeah, but he was stopped by ordinary beat patrol officers on bicycles yeah. who cycled up alongside the lorry and shot him. Yes. Our well, own we've I mean, we've learned a little bit more, haven't we, Kevin, since you and I last spoke. There's a bit of video we can look at here, uh, which shows the, um, uh, the assailant uh, shortly before the rampage and the murders began, trying to break into what we believe to be some form of homeless hostel. Um, but he was punched in the face by somebody um, who's inside, um, and he just basically gives up. We've also learned uh, that he was known to MI5 because he apparently turned up at the security services HQ, uh, demanded to be let into the building. Um, apparently his details were taken, and then he left. I don't know what that means. Why would they take the details of somebody who's clearly um, a slightly um, deranged and then just let him go? Yeah, well, of course. I mean, it's like any kind of public service agency, they're going to record the details and decide whether it's worthy of um, further investigation. Because, in fact, I know people who work in the unit, which is Joint Police Counterterrorism mm. Unit, who do that for these kind of what you might call potential maybe type suspects. And yeah. they then have to make a decision if they're going to develop it further. But I think what we're looking at, and again, this is summation, is someone who's suffering from some form of mental a disorder and his behaviour. I mean, I'm rather pleased to see he got punched in the face. Yeah. Um, you know, but that's a personal view. Um, in fact, shame he didn't fall over and break his neck, actually. Well, shame he didn't knock him yeah. out and then we could have, you know, perhaps prevented what then happened afterwards. Well, yeah, I mean, let's be honest, let's tell it how most of, most of the people yeah. watching this yeah, program Yeah, you don't have to worry it. about uh, getting offended yeah. anybody here. 
Yeah, well, I don't really, because I know <laughs> most ordinary, decent human beings think that way. Um, but, I mean, the, the problem with it is, although MI5 have recorded him um, and they may have said, oh, we've got a right weirdo walking, yeah, pass it on to the intelligence people, they would probably have had a look at him and thought, when I say look at him, a bit of local research, anything known? No, not really. Um, they may have passed that on up to local police, wherever he was living at that time. They may have put him into into one of their databases as guy who's turned in as a walking, frankly, nutter in the parlance at MI5. But it wouldn't have got any more attention because there are so many mentally disordered people out in the community now doing all kinds of stuff. Whether or not it subsequently turns out that this guy was known for mental illness or not, and was a care in the community case or not, we will find out in the fullness of time. But it, it brings me back to my point. There is a need for patrolling police officers when they're called to protect you, me, our families, when someone is running amok, mm. to do a little bit more than, with them than perhaps just have a wave of baton at them or you try and fire a taser at them, mm. which may or may not work. Mm. Yeah. When someone's starting to kill us on the street when with our families, we need to know the police can stop them immediately. And they can't now. Yeah, it's a very good point, Kevin. I'm pleased you made it again. We'll talk to you again soon, I'm sure. Um, Kevin Hurley, the former Surrey Police and Crime Commissioner, more or less calling for the arming, I think, of, uh, of a lot more police officers, but not all of them. There's no question now that if we are going to be faced with, even if it's only occasional attacks by random people, whether they be suffering from, you know, some form of schizophrenia or mental health issue or, um, you know, because they're terrorists and because they wish to harm us for some ideological reason... If that's going to be something we see more and more, then I would arm the police. Why the hell not? You don't want to be in a position where your children are going to be stabbed to death on the streets of our cities by some maniac who perhaps shouldn't even be here. Coming up, we're going to talk to Ben Habib right here on Talk TV. Welcome, welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Lots to do, uh, plenty of time to do it, and do keep your uh, uh, messages coming in. You can tweet us, of course, at Talk TV. Tweet me at IROMG, and many, many more of you are texting in as well. Uh, you can do that too. And Glenn has texted in. He says, Mike, what has caused the mass migration to the West? Legal and illegal migrants are coming in their millions to Europe and the UK. Why? Most are from safe countries. Well, they might be safe countries, but they're not countries where they want to live. And I think that's part of the problem, that there are many countries in Africa, many countries in Asia, and many countries uh, of, uh, uh, of even further afield than that where people just say, well, you know, we fancy living in France or we fancy living in Germany or Denmark or Sweden uh, or possibly Belgium or maybe England or maybe Scotland. And they just come because they can. And I think it is a problem. And I don't think anybody really has properly grasped that nettle. Let's talk to Ben Habib, former MEP, of course. We had Suella Braverman early uh, yesterday saying uh, basically that uh, it's going to be impossible to, to get the backlog down sufficiently. Uh, so... You know what's going to come next. Inevitably, there'll be some kind of amnesty offered. Ben, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. I, I mean, mean, they're already offering an amnesty, aren't they, Mike? I mean, in, in a sense, because in, they've simplified the paperwork, they're accelerating it, they're giving people rights to stay for longer. They've reversed some of the provisions of the, uh, the Nationality and mm. Borders Bill that became the Act under Priti Patel. You know, every time they say they're going to use deterrent as a mechanism to stop these people from crossing the channel... Um, they weakened the deterrent, you know, 
I, I, I just don't know what they're thinking, Frank. Sorry, I've jumped in. I've just gone no, straight. You know, no, no, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you yeah. did because, because there are so many questions around it. One of them is, though, why is everybody coming? Because they can, presumably, is the answer, right? Yeah, I, I, I think it's push and pull, isn't it? You know, we had a big spike of asylum applications back in the early 2000s during the... Sorry, forgive me. During the invasion of Iraq mm. and... Uh, uh, first of all, Afghanistan and then Iraq, there was a, a big uptick in asylum applications to the UK. But then we had Angela Merkel do something utterly lunatic in 2015 when she put an open invitation to Syrians to come into Germany. And, you know, they took a million people. Can you imagine, Mike, a million people overnight? And that es essentially signaled to the rest of the world that Europe was open. And remember, the United Kingdom was part of freedom of movement right. then. And so we don't, um, you know, that invitation that went out, that sort of Europe is open sign, I think has been really difficult to close. And as being, and as, you know, with a, being a member of the European Union, we suffered freedom of movement back in 2015. So if these people got the right to stay in Europe, they would then have the right to come to the United Kingdom. Mm. Thankfully, we weren't part of the Schengen zone. Right. And I think the Schengen zone has a lot to answer for, because the minute they're into a Schengen country, they can then literally walk across borders without being required to mm. show any paperwork and just turn up on the French beaches, in effect, and get in these dinghies and try and make it to the UK. So it's a function, I think, of foreign policy, back in the early 2000s, and then we've compounded it with the Arab yeah. Spring, which created a kind of push towards, the, towards Europe and the UK. And then this kind of completely stupid open borders attitude, both external to the European Union and also internal to the EU. And people keep telling me, oh, you know, before Brexit, we didn't have this influx of people. It's got nothing to do with Brexit. It's to do with idiotic European Union policies on the subject. Which kind of lunatic doesn't protect their borders? Mm. And sadly, we're falling straight into that trap. And the more I debate this, the crosser I get about it all, because it's so obvious <laughs> that the only well, thing we need to do is to shut our borders, don't yeah. we, Mike? Shut well, absolutely. the border. Absolutely right. And, and stop saying, oh, but, you know, we do need immigrant work because, you know, we've invited 1.2 million people in um, legally. And, oh, but that's only because people came from Ukraine and Hong Kong. No, it isn't. People are coming from India. People are coming from all sorts of parts of North Africa. People are coming from Pakistan. People are coming from all over the world legally. You know, it may be that the man who uh, is currently being held in Nottingham came here on a student visa. We understand he came here legally. We don't know exactly um, how long ago, but around about 10 or 11 years ago. He's 31 now. You know, he may well be some of those, one of those people that overstayed a visa. If that's true, then that's a real problem. And I also want to point it out is. that back in the beginning of the century, when Blair was in charge, there were three countries which took um, absolutely no limit on the number of um, people that would be allowed into the country. And that was nothing to do with Schengen, but it was Sweden, it was Ireland and it was Britain. Right. The three countries which are now suffering um, with a very, very big uh, illegal yeah. migration problem. It, 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 a huge problem. And, you know, we tend to analyse the problem through pounds, shillings and pence and the burden it puts on our public sectors. But there's something much more sinister going on. And, I, and we've got to talk about it. And it's the undermining of the social fabric of the United Kingdom. A lot of these people come here with values that are alien to us and hold our values in that, 
in contempt mm. and they don't they don't assimilate they don't wish to be british in the sense that i believe british to be they don't want to support our values they trash them they trash our heritage they trash our history and then try and impose their views on us and that this is going to become an increasingly bigger problem and it's one that can't be addressed through pounds shillings and pence even if you can build the number of houses required even if you can provide them with all the free medical care that we so willingly give mm. them free dental care and all the rest of it we will not mend the social fabric of this country and that is deeply deeply dangerous because part of the reason mike that we're so welcoming is because of the wonderful values that we have as a country mm. but those values will change and we we will become a, a much more difficult society if we don't address this problem now it's got to be done for the sake of the country for the sake of the integrity of the united kingdom and what we are and what we believe in we've got to get a grip of this problem and the politicians have got to stop talking about it through a prism of humanitarianism and a need to be welcoming and only deporting those who haven't got a valid asylum claim and shut the wretched borders and only allow people in who've actually got the right to enter who we know you know the identity of whom we know we've checked them we've vetted them they've been through our processes everyone else should be stopped from entering there should be net there should be no uh, illegal immigration coming into the uk none no and yet uh, once again despite what rishi sunak said the other day 1200 more people have come in the last 3 days alone why because the weather's nice the tides are running in the right direction um, and there's plenty of people waiting in calais to go to the next dinghy so you know until you stop yeah. them doing that it's just going to get worse it is going to get worse and i mean the whole thing has just gone utterly daft um you know rishi sunak pretending that he got a grip of the problem by rushing down mm. to dover and getting that you know moment on camera which he obviously you know he, that trip wasn't announced it was short term because he was told the weather's going to change and they're going to come in numbers mm. and sure enough a day or two later that they've started coming in numbers again I mean I I I just don't know where we go with this Mike. We have a government that is so weak. It won't face up to what the nature of this problem is, which is a, a failure to enforce our borders. And as I've said on your program before, we possess all the rights and international laws that we need in order to prevent people seeking to enter our territorial waters illegally. It's all there to be read in plain black and white. in the UN convention of the law of the sea it's international law on the subject but we will not enforce our rights it's it's just wretched yeah it really is and um, let's hope that we don't have to have too many more of these conversations before the next election ben but i fear we will ben habib former mp there saying it's wretched it absolutely is wretched there's no other word for it because nobody seems to be able to get to grips with it for heaven's sake a uh, little bit of breaking news for you double oscar winning actress and former labor mp glenda jackson has died aged 87 after a brief illness at her home in blackheath South East London, uh, according to her agent, uh, what a great woman she was. Glenda Jackson was a fine actress. Enjoyed her work very much indeed. Uh, we'll talk some more about that, I'm sure, throughout the course of the day. Uh, coming up next, though, we'll take more of your calls and the world of wokes coming a little bit later on as well. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show ten to one Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. 
The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.